1: From PS Literary Agency. Before we begin today's episode, I just want to remind you about the deep dive workshop series we've got coming up from the 31st of January until the 4th of April, in which we will have 10 amazing speakers who will be presenting about various aspects of craft as well as the business side of publishing. Now, after each presentation, we'll host an hour workshop in which you'll have discussions and do writing exercises so that you can learn to apply what you've learned. You'll be sorted into a new group each week, so you'll get a lot of different feedback on your work while also making new writing friends who can potentially become beta readers or writing group friends. If you're in a different time zone, don't worry. The recording of each session will go out the next day and you'll be able to connect with other writers. In your time zone, so that you can set up your own breakaway sessions at times that suit you using the workshop prompts we'll send on. Now, if you want to kick off 2023 with a new commitment to your writing, this is the perfect way to do it. Head over to theshitaboutwriting.com and go to the deep dive page to sign up.
2: Welcome to another Books with Hooks. Carly and I are solo today, and we will not be hot messes this time or will we? We don't know. It's a mystery.
0: We make zero promises. I will try to time (laughs) us so we don't go off the rails. We make zero promises.
2: Okay. So Carly, will you kick us off with the first query letter?
0: Dear Carly, Cece, and Bianca, I'm resubmitting this query letter in pages after my three beta readers from the matchup all had the same comments. Your podcasts and offerings have completely altered how I think about writing. I can't thank you enough. Natalie Leaves Her Baggage Unattended is a coming of middle age contemporary women's fiction novel completed 89,000 words. Starts as a breezy toe dip into open marriage until Natalie uncovers a family secret that has her bracing for a water landing. Natalie Levy creates ketubahs, Illuminated Wedding Contracts, for Jewish or Jewish ish weddings, so no one is more surprised than she when a chance flirtation at the arrivals terminal has her reconsidering the terms of her own nuptials. With her libido peaked in her husband Ezra's enthusiastic approval, Natalie investigates the mysteries and misconceptions of female desire as she bumbles through a number of sanctioned sexual pursuits. Exciting at first, even comical, the arrangement loses its luster when jealousy and rejection exposes the rot in their marriage's foundation. As they scramble to save the relationship, Natalie discovers that she's not the first to look elsewhere in her maternal line, or even the second. Now she must reconcile her shock and devastation with the surprising gifts her mother's decades-long secret has to offer. Like Fleshman is in Trouble by Taffy, Broder, Ackner, and The Paper Palace by Miranda Callie Heller, Natalie leaves her baggage unattended, examines modern marriage, midlife sexuality, and the unraveling of multi-generational secrets, with honesty and humor in equal measure. I work as a visual artist and split my time between California and Israel. Before I pivoted to art and design, I spent my days writing as a marketing content writer for major institutions and brands, including Photars, Stanford, and Shutterfly. Natalie Leaves Her Baggage Unattended is my first novel. Please find the first five pages pasted below. I would be happy to send you the full manuscript at your request. My best, Susie Lovell.
2: All right. Thank you so much, Carly. So what's the word count on that? And what did you think of the query letter?
0: All right. So this one clocked in at 315 words. So there we are. Okay. So I really like titles with the character's name in it. So I actually really, really liked this title. I also like the coming of middle age. I think we talked about this on the podcast before, but the idea of like a second coming of age or, you know, this midlife coming of age, I really like this. And other editors have been talking about this. So I think this is really on point for kind of, you know, zeitgeisty conversations that we're having right now. So I liked that. So, my first question was around why she is at the arrivals terminal. I think there's so much about this query letter that is like so voicey in a really good way, really specific word choices that I really appreciated but I almost sometimes felt like we were being cutesy with language at the loss of like understanding always what's going on which is always a balance to play with so I I do think it's really well written and I think I had a lot of fun reading it as you probably you know heard me read it on the podcast here so this is one of the things where I'm like why is she at the arrivals terminal we don't really know but she meets somebody and that's cool because you made it sound like the fact that she does these illuminated wedding contracts has something to do with the fact that she was at the airport and I just think reader's might not be able to kind of connect the dots there too. I love this little like husband supports her stepping out of the marriage bit. I think this is super interesting. I also think you're you're leaving a lot of like curiosity seeds. Um, and I, I think there's a lot here to kind of Discover. Okay, so my last point here is just around the kind of central question of the entire book, which is what's her goal, right? Like, is the goal just to explore her sexuality? Is it to kind of get back with the husband because it seems like the marriage might be kind of falling apart a little bit? I'm really missing this this kind of last bit of information. I think that will really like seal this book together because I think it's interesting that she's going to kind of journey down this maternal line. To kind of figure out maybe, you know, if this is a historical thing that's happening in her family, why is that? Again, I think that might lead to the kind of fact that you called it women's fiction because potentially it might be a more kind of emotional women's journey. But I would really love to see something a bit more like plot based at the end of this plot paragraph that really tells us why it matters that she's stepping out. What's at stake here if she does step out, right? Like all these big kind of plot central questions. But I think the comps are great. I think this is really strong and voicey.
2: Wonderful. Thank you so much. And what were in those first five pages?
0: Alrighty. So we start with part one departures. We meet her at the airport as was kind of alluded to in the query letter. She is waiting for her mother and she also has something she needs to mail specifically. It seems like at the airport post office. So she has something she needs to mail. She's waiting for her mother. She's like, I'm waiting for my mom. I need to to get this to the mailbox. How do I figure out what to do? She's waiting. She's waiting. Nobody from that flight from Los Angeles is a, so she's like, okay, what am I going to do here? So she runs off to the post office to kind of mail the material she needs to mail, which is the ketubah. And then she kind of comes back and her mother calls her and she says, I lost my bag. And there's this handsome man that's been helping me out to figure out at the lost baggage area. And so she like wanders back to get her mom expecting this guy to be the same age as her mom. And then he ends up being kind of young and handsome. So I'm making it sound like it's more romancy than it is. It's not, but that's kind of where we end off.
2: That sounds fun. And what did you think of the pages?
0: All right. So I'll read you the first line because I think it's great. And it says, at the airport, a thousand stories are beginning and ending all around me, but I'm only interested in one. The one where Roberta walks through the sliding doors and we drive home before rush hour. So I I love that line. I think it's great. I also was a bit confused by the time I got a little later. So I'm like, who is Roberta? Usually you wouldn't call your mother by her first name. So I didn't know if you kind of said Roberta for the sake of like making that line sound like extra, uh, I don't know emphatic. But yeah, that was, that was, it was a great live. But then I was like, okay, it's just, you know, it's her mother, but she doesn't call her by her name. So that was just an interesting bit of information about their family dynamic. One thing which you guys can see on the Kofi and the author will see when I send the pages is that I think that the opening paragraph needs to be broken out with way more line breaks i just feel like we just like jammed everything into this one paragraph that's about like half a page long and i think we need to like break 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 like let us kind of get into the moment with you because i just think line breaks are a little underutilized here my main kind of question or concern about this these opening pages is not anything to do with like the tension or like what's going on or the drama or the plot. It has to do with the energy shift of the character, because I felt like the character that I met in paragraph one does not feel like the same character that I'm meeting in paragraph two and in page two and page three and page four and so on. I just felt like it's a very chaotic energy because on one hand you're saying like she's organized because she's like, I'm gonna bring like all this stuff to the airport to do it one time. And then it's like, oh, she didn't plan for what she was gonna do first, mail the letter or wait for her mom. So there's just a lot of, lot of chaotic energy. And also when she's waiting in line at the post office, stressed about her mom, she's also like doing Wordle on her phone. And she says like, I'm really good at multitasking. But then I'm like, are you good at multitasking? Because like you left your mother hanging there. So yeah, I just felt like I didn't understand this character at all. And not for the sake that she wasn't interesting, but like she was a bit chaotic for me. And I really just wanted to understand her a little bit better. I think
2: always a great sign when we want to know more about a character. Okay, so thank you so much, Carly. I will now read my first query letter. Dear Cece Lira, I am writing to seek representation for Exit 66, a 70,000-word contemporary upmarket novel about two estranged siblings on a road trip with their dying father to find him a new home. I hope this project will resonate with you due to your interest in novels about dysfunctional families and your desire to see contemporary fiction in the vein of Curtis Sittenfeld and J. Courtney Sullivan. Eleanor's father has lost his mind. After steadily declining from early onset dementia, he has a psychotic break on Thanksgiving weekend and sets his room on fire. Although Eleanor moved across the country to flee her dysfunctional father and estranged brother, Wesley. She now feels duty-bound to board a plane home to Texas. Armed with an iron resolve and spreadsheets galore, she thinks she can handle her father's deteriorating condition and begins to carefully arrange his affairs. But when she finally sees his wild-eyed mania and his drained bank account, she breaks down and calls Wesley for help. With their hallucinating dad in tow and Christmas fast approaching, The reunited siblings set off on a road trip through middle America to find their father a new home, unsure if they can bridge the distance between them or reconcile their roles as caregivers with the pain they still carry. This book deals with themes of difficult family, illness, and bodily autonomy the grip of the past, and explores questions of what we owe each other, all against the backdrop of a zany odyssey through the heartland, with Christmas music playing on a nauseating loop overhead. Think of it as the Little Miss Sunshineification of Still Alice, or as the dysfunctional family from Anne Patchett's The Dutch House on a road trip like Mary Miller's The Last Days of California underpinned by similar themes and dark humor from Rachel Kong's Goodbye Vitamin. My name is Redacted. Over the last decade, I have harbored dreams of becoming a published novelist while building a career and writing a portfolio in the public policy field. My writing has been published by policy journals, advocacy organizations, and think tanks, and my research on CEO pay was cited by the New York Times. I have a master's in public policy from the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, where I served as an editor of the Kennedy School Review and won the Taubman Center Urban Prize for my thesis on economic equity in cities. In my free time, I also write fiction, avidly consume contemporary literature, and run a book talk account with more than 10,000 followers. Originally from Texas, I now live in Washington, D.C. Thank you for considering my query. This story is close to home for me, and I am gratified to share it with you. I have enclosed my first pages per the submission instructions. I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you, Redacted.
0: All right. Thanks for that one, Cece. Let us know how long it is and what you thought.
2: So this is around 480 words, so 480 on the longer side, but I didn't feel like it was too long. I really, really, really like this query letter. It is very polished. It is very well executed. The author should be very proud of what she did here. So congratulations. I'm actually assuming we're talking about a sheet. I don't know that, but I'm going to continue to assume. Um, Anyway, so my only note, again, I feel like this is ready to be sent out in terms of the query letter, but I'm here. I'm going to give notes. My only note is You're saying that she has, she the protagonist, Eleanor, you're saying that Eleanor has a difficult relationship with her father and brother, right? Except I have no sense of why this relationship is so difficult, especially the brother. So I'm wondering whether there's room to include that here because, well, again, super polished, amazing query letter. It does tell me that it's a quieter book. If it's not a quieter book, then the query letter doesn't need more plot. But if it is a quieter book, and I do think I'm right, and it is, then the query letter is, is conveying what it's supposed to, except for maybe the reason for the estrangement. If it's connected to a family secret, obviously you wouldn't want to give that away. But something in tr- that would tell us the neighborhood of what it of, of the reasons for both father and brother might just give this a bit more texture. And that's what I would have liked to see here. But again, great, great job. Thank you so much for sharing.
0: All right, Cece, so tell us what is in these opening pages.
2: So we have our protagonist, Eleanor, getting a call. She's in the car with her husband, and it's her father. She knows this because she was listening to an audiobook, and her father's name floods the screen. And she decides not to pick up. But then he calls again. And when she finally does pick up, he is confused. He's saying that there are kids there attacking him and she's saying, what kids? There are no kids at your sister's house. Her father lives with his sister, her aunt, and she's just incredibly confused about what he means, and he is yelling at her. He's saying, you know, why haven't you been picking up your phone? I've been trying to call you, and through interiority, we learn that he has been trying to call her, but that she's ignored the calls, and her husband's being supportive, but at the same time, they don't know what's happening, so then she decides to call her aunt, and that's what she does, but you know we don't get to see that phone call because the page is end. She basically says, okay, dad, just give me a minute, and she's going to call her aunt.
0: All right, so give us your take on these pages.
2: So I want to begin by saying that this is really grounded in scene, and that was really well done. I always knew exactly where we were, what was happening in terms of movement, micro-movements, macro-movements. I knew who was saying each line. I had a very clear sense of whose head we were in. I often read things in which that isn't the case. And so great, great job grounding us in scene. The writing is also really polished, right? There wasn't a single clunky sentence. There wasn't, I don't even think I saw a typo, which is like super impressive. So like you did a very good job of polishing this. In terms of room for improvement, I do worry that there's more opportunity for interiority here, that it's a little bit overwritten and that you're not leaving any room for mystery. So here's what I mean by that. In terms of interiority, when she's with her husband in the car, having a moment to herself, listening to a fun audiobook, and then the phone call comes up, we find out on page three or four, when her dad says, I've been calling you, that that is not the first call, except her interiority doesn't reflect that. And that's not realistic. If you're in a car and your father's calling you, and he has called you that day 10 times before, you're going to be like, oh my God, not again, right? You're going to have that thought as well you can use the opportunity of being inside someone's head to shed light on some really interesting details. So for example, the caller ID flashed across the car's console screen, along with a photo of Eleanor's father from 30 years ago, wearing a tracksuit, Eleanor was a red-faced baby in his arms. When she sees that picture, does she think, oh my gosh, simpler times, I wish we could go back and start over. Does she resent the picture, assuming she didn't choose it? Does she find it fraudulent? Attaching thoughts and feelings to details gives a piece of writing a lot more texture. So these are just things that you can do to really elevate the writing here. And I flagged moments in which I had questions in which you might like to take a look and develop the interiority a little bit more. In terms of the overwritten, I counted like I think four times where she said that he calls a lot and that she's always fixing his problems. And I'm thinking, is this intentional? Because the reader gets it. Like the reader understands that this happens a lot and you only really need to say it once. And maybe if this is taking up her headspace twice, but I would just avoid the repetition. Trust that your reader will get it because I promise, I promise your writing is strong enough that you do not have to repeat yourself. And then in terms of the no room for mystery, this is a matter of taste, but I am a firm believer that stories are puzzles and that our brains like to put the pieces together Ourselves. The best way to do that, no matter the genre, is to use a technique called the emotional entryway. Emotional entryway is a really simple technique where an author will introduce something, a person, a thing about the world building, anything, an element of the story through emotion first. The best example is J.L. Richardson's Gutter Child. We cover this in the book club. The first time we hear about the gutter, The gutter is something that exists only in JL's world, is through the protagonist thinking, at least it's not the gutter. The protagonist, let me tell you, is not in a happy place at the start of that novel. She is arriving at a new place. She's an outsider. Her mom has died. She has no one in the world. She does not want to be there. This is made very clear through JL's fabulous writing. And yet, and yet, she still thinks, at least it's not the gutter. So I don't know what the gutter is. Right when I read that, but I have an emotional connection to the gutter. I know that however, whatever it is, it's really bad. Now, the same thing can be done here. and now maybe you're thinking, well, this isn't sci-fi or it isn't you know speculative fiction. No, it's not, but it can be used in any genre. Instead of telling me who Aunt Debbie is, make sure to make me feel who Aunt Debbie is first. So there's a line that reads, "Are you in your room at Aunt Debbie's? And then there's interiority. Debbie was her father's younger sister, a tough 60-year-old woman with lively eyes and spiky hair. She had taken in Eleanor's father a year ago when he was fired from yet another job. That's important context. I appreciate you explaining that, but the explanation doesn't make me connect. If you had mentioned Aunt Debbie when the protagonist first fielded the phone call, you could have said something like, he's Aunt Debbie's problem until I get home. And I would have been like, ooh, I don't know who Aunt Debbie is. And then I would have figured it out once you offered the explanation. Doing this, in my opinion and for my taste, elevates your story because it leaves room for a little bit of mystery, um, which, again, will be answered really soon, right? Like we would have gotten all those answers in the first five pages. So it's totally a matter of taste. Don't feel like you have to take my notes, but I would follow this technique. All right, Carly, will you read us the next query letter?
0: Here we go. Dear Bianca, Carly, and Cece, thank you so much for your podcast. I'm an avid listener and only regret that I did not find it sooner in my writing slash querying journey. I appreciate any feedback you can offer on my query and pages. Complete at 82,300 words, Evening Table is an upmarket novel with speculative elements. It features a dual timeline slash POV similar to Samantha Hunt's Mr. Splitfoot and the complex dynamics of closed communities and found family seen in The Ash Family by Molly Dektar and elsewhere by Alexis Shakin. Alice Green knows it's a hoax when the leader of the cult she's been raised in announces the end of the world. She also knows it's the perfect chance to escape before he finds out she's pregnant with the baby she's not supposed to have. But as she watches his prophecy come true and over a hundred members of the cult disappear into a plume of smoke and light, all her plans crumble. In shock and feeling betrayed by doubt, she reconnects with her childhood best friend, Edwin. He's got a message from their vanished leader. He and Alice will shepherd the remaining members into Earth's final days. Certain she's no leader, but terrified she'll lose the only family she has left, Alice is paralyzed by indecision until she finds her mother's journal and uncovers the secrets and lies that built their community. As the consequences of these revelations come to light in Edwin's zeal for their departed mentor grows feverish, Alice must confront the faith of her past or risk losing the future in the baby she longs for. The story was inspired in part by my own departure from evangelicalism and the deconstruction that followed. My writing has been published in Front Porch Review and Heartwood Literary Magazine, among others. I live in central New York with my husband, our two crazy kids, and one ornery dog. I can most frequently be found writing at the kitchen table while the baby naps. Thank you for your consideration. Sincerely, Alexandra Falkenberry.
2: All right. So Carly, can you tell us the word count on that and what you thought about the query letter?
0: Okay. So today we clock in at 327 words. I think both of my query letters today were very on point for, for word count. Okay. So I think these comps are great. I also think these comps kind of speak to the kind of feminist sci-fi kind of area, like the power and that sort of thing. So I do feel like there is a category here for these types of books. I'm not saying that it is saturated. I'm saying that it is abundant, perhaps, is maybe the word I would use. So really, yeah, we're looking for what's the unique hook to stand out in this kind of feminist sci-fi, feminist speculative category. Okay, so my main question here is, yes, this is very interesting, but how does she know that it's not going to be the end of the world, even though everybody else in the community does does she like, does she not believe in which ways is she different than everybody in the community? I kind of wanted to find that out. Right. Has she just kind of tired of the community? She wants to get out. Why hasn't she left? Like little, little things like that. But like, why would you be in this community and not believing this cult leader, that kind of thing. I'm a little bit, a little bit confused about that bit. Another thing I think we really need to hone in on here is the setting. Where are they? Where are they in the world? This is a big part of this kind of type of book is where are they? What's the, what's the environment like, right? Because usually communities like this are very entrenched in nature, right? So I think the environment and nature and, and where they are in the world has a lot to do with this. Next question is around Edwin. So it says she reconnects with her childhood best friend. I was thinking like maybe Edwin is from the outside world, right? Like maybe her childhood wasn't even in this kind of cult community. So I wasn't sure, but like, did she get out? Did she not get out? Where is Edwin? And then I kind of figure, okay, he is part of the community. We kind of don't fully understand that her family disappears. We kind of assume they did because she said she finds her mother's journal. So yes, we kind of assume the family leaves, but that's not really spelled out. I think all this is, is very interesting. I think just knowing that there are books out there in that kind of speculative space, I would just really, really want to make sure that we're getting at what is all especially unique about this project and a stronger sense of place, I think would really help us with that. And also kind of understanding how she views the world that she's in. But I think this idea that they, they actually do disappear is really interesting. This is, this is really good. And I think your author bio is good too.
2: I love the power. I just have to say that before saying anything else. I am obsessed with the power. It is one of my favorite books. Okay. So what was happening in those opening pages?
0: All right. So we start with, we are told that this is an Alice's point of view. We're in first person. Alice is kind of looking out the window. We know that it is the last day, the end of days. So some people are kind of gathering themselves, kind of going out into the meadow. She's kind of watching everybody go out into the meadow. It's not like forced for them to all go out in the meadow. So only some people are going out, but the idea is like, it's the end. So people aren't really communicating. There's no dialogue, but she's kind of communicating with her mother with her eyes to kind of she puts her hand on her belly to kind of symbolize to her mother like hey i'm pregnant the mother kind of through their eye communication figures it out and then the leader says like it's time right and so they all kind of start to make their way up to the meadow but this character doesn't and then all of a sudden they they disappear and so she has a partner i don't know if they're married or not named jason who we assume to be the the father of the child our character doesn't believe that the the kind of reckoning is going to happen. They call it the homegoing. And so, but he really does. He Like this Jason guy really does. So all of a sudden at the end of our five pages, everybody's gone. We don't really understand who is left and who is not, but everybody that seemed to kind of go to the meadow and believe disappears. And that's where we end.
2: And what did you think of the execution?
0: Okay. Well, we had another really good first line here. So I'll read it to you guys. I decide to watch the end of the world from the storeroom window. I think that's a great first line. I just love that we're not messing about either. It also kind of reminded me of The Leftovers. I forget the author of that one. You guys will know what I mean. It was turned into a, a television show as well, right? So that could that could potentially be a good comp as well. But anyway, we finally got the setting that we were missing. So right away, we learned what we are. We're in summer n- rural New York. That was very useful information. So I'm glad we got. I got my answer to my setting question really quick. It was quite kind of allegorical, as I said, there was really no dialogue until the maybe like fourth or fifth page of this idea that like everybody was kind of making their way into the meadow. Very lyrical, very well written. And I think my big question is like, what does she believe and what does she not believe and why does she feel that way? I think was my big question. Like, why doesn't she believe that it's not real? She says, I've been here long enough to know that there's no cosmic plan. So why is she there? Is she just there for Jason? Then why not leave? Or, you know, she just really loves him. And again, like, you know, she's having the baby with him. But overall, it's really strong. It's a bit, uh, probably a bit more literary leaning. I'm not sure how much of the book is gonna, gonna be told in this kind of way because it's such kind of a big moment we're culminating towards. The last thing I want to say is that I don't think we end this chapter in the right place because it says. And as suddenly as it begins, it's gone. I look up. The window is lacy with cracks, but I can see the metal beyond. My parents, Jason, brother Richmond, gone. They're all gone. The prophecy came true, period. I think it should end there. There's another paragraph that gets into like kind of her feelings about it. I weep for my disbelief and the loss. Not all that. And that's the start of the next paragraph. You can weave that into the next chapter. Really, we need to end with they're all gone. The prophecy came true, period.
2: Dun, dun, dun. Bianca's way better at the dun, dun, dun. Okay. <laughs> so thank you so much for that, Carly.
0: All right, Cece, let's get to the last query letter.
2: Let's do this. Dear Cece, Carly, and Bianca, I recently discovered the Shit known Tells You About Writing podcast, and to say I am obsessed would be putting it mildly. Your insights, tips, and advice for emerging writers are invaluable. You've given me the courage I need to begin my query process. Thank you so much for all that you do. I'm querying Cece based on her wish list for family stories with standout female relationships. My debut book, Rainbow State, is a 100,000 word standalone YA novel. With the family history, mystery, and charming first love romance, such as that in Love and Gelato by Jenna Evans Welch, and the seaside setting, quirky humor, and magical realism of Marissa Meyer's Instant Karma, Readers will love the more tropical rainbow state. 15-year-old Jade comes from a family of strong women with unusual talents. She can literally see people's true colors. Their auras tell her who's a friend and who's a bully. Afraid her peculiar gift will draw unwanted attention from her schoolmates, under no circumstances can her crush, DJ, ever find out how tragically weird she is. She hides her capability and isolates herself only Jade is already alone. After her mother's recent death in a car accident, Jade is lost, the only one who knows that the crash was Jade's father's fault. Jade's mother was a photographer, the haunting images of their Hawaiian island covering the walls of her gallery. However, troubling questions arise surrounding her family's past when Jade discovers an image of a child who bears an uncanny resemblance to a local girl who drowned in a shipwreck 15 years earlier. Jade is shocked to learn that her parents were survivors and that not all the deaths were drownings. A trail of ghostly visits, secret notes, and unexpected photos force Jade not only into the path of the very boy she's been swooning over, but also Layla, an unrelenting bully, and Layla's mother, Helen, who harbors a fierce grudge against Jade's parents. As Jade gets closer to learning what happened aboard the ship, Helen threatens to destroy the memory of Jade's mother. Jade must decide if uncovering the truth about her parents is worth the risk of losing her mother all over again. However, her greatest challenge is accepting that her past has made her who she is and that the curse of her unique vision is her greatest gift. A professional photographer since 1998, I drive my family bonkers taking photos of everything. Though admittedly, if you were to check my camera feed, you'd find the majority of the pictures are of my rescue wiener dog, Benji. I've always lived in New England, but I know in my heart I was born for warmer climates. I fully intend to live out the second half of my life under palm trees, sipping from fresh coconuts with Benji. May I send you my full manuscript? Thank you in advance for your time and consideration. Sincerely, Mariah Ashley
0: Thank you for that, Cece. Tell us how long it is and what you thought about this one.
2: This one is approximately 495 words. I love the mention of Benji. I want to snuggle with Benji. Okay. I totally want that for you too. The sipping from fresh coconuts with Benji. So thank you for sharing. So this is strong. I like the query letter. Minor, minor line note. There's two howevers that to me don't need to be there because they don't seem to be in opposition to anything. I think you just cut them, honestly. Also, I wanted to understand why she is going to search for her family's past. Like, I just wanted to understand how the plot comes together in the way that honors the web effect, meaning like one thing is tied to another in a way that Cannot be untangled so easily. I would also move up the reference to Layla. So, for example, she could write something like, "Under no circumstances can her crush DJ ever find out how tragically weird she is," or Layla, or maybe even only Jade is ready alone can go. And you can add something about which is fine by Jade since that means Layla picks on her, Layla, her bully picks on her less. I don't know. And we'll just move up that reference because that way when we reach the, oh my gosh, and then Layla also comes into the equation when she starts uncovering secrets, then it just, it, it hits a bit more impactfully. So yeah, so those are my notes, but this is really strong. I obviously don't rep YA, but I really like what I see here. And I enjoy critiquing YA for the podcast because it's always interesting to be in teenagers'
0: heads. All right. So tell us what is in these opening pages.
2: This moves at a great pace. I want to say that. So our protagonist is arriving home and her dad is calling out to her saying that she was rude, that the woman, we don't know who the woman is, was just being kind. She is giving her dad the silent treatment. So we are getting her answers through interiority. Essentially, this woman mentioned that she looks like her mother and she's thinking to herself, no, she doesn't because her mom is really beautiful and she's not really beautiful. And that is why she's so upset. But she does not tell her father any of this. She locks herself in her room, manages to not allow her father to go inside. And he's on the other side of the door concerned for her. And she's just, you know, not doing well. She misses her mom, of course. And she doesn't like the fact that people say they look alike because they don't. And eventually she does break the silent treatment, though only through a whisper and tells her dad, tells her dad to go because she doesn't want him to be outside the door. And her dad has just mentioned that she has the same hair as her mom. So then she thinks, well, mom loved my hair. So she takes a pair of scissors, cuts her hair off, realizes what she did. She does not like how she looks essentially, but does think to herself, no one will mistake me for my beautiful, inspiring, talented mother. So she has to go find her auntie because she's done a disaster with her hair. So she sneaks out to find her auntie. Her auntie's busy, but she's always available for her. But then she sees Benny and she's like, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to talk to him, even though my hair looks like this. And that's where the pages stop.
0: Okay. And give us your analysis.
2: So the protagonist's voice is really strong here. So excellent, excellent job. The pace is amazing. Like I said, like the movement is just so well done. I... I never felt like we were taking too long or the pace was dragging, right? I never had that sensation. So really, really good job there too. Assuming the rest of the manuscript is as polished as these first five pages, I would say you're ready to submit. That being said, I read this. I am I, incapable of reading something and not having like at least questions, right? Like at least questions that I wanna share. So the specificity of memory in her interiority is something that I wanted to see. For example, Her father asks her, what's wrong with being compared to your mother? Like, what's so bad about that? And she thinks, because she's giving her dad the silent treatment, because my face hints around it pretty, but most people never get the hint. Let's be honest. That's the truth. And we get a line that's not direct thoughts, but it is interiority saying, my mother was stopping your track. Gorgeous, a local beauty. And I, well, I am not. And given that we spend quite some time on how like her mom was gorgeous and she doesn't feel gorgeous, I'm wondering whether she wouldn't like pull up a memory of a time in her life where that disparity had an emotional impact on her. So for example, if her mom was really beautiful, maybe her mom picked her up from school and the boys would comment about how gorgeous her mom was or not even the boys, why does it have to be a boys? The kids would comment, you know, maybe her teachers would comment, maybe someone said, a comment with good intentions but that really hurt her something like you know one day you'll grow into a beauty like your mom I don't know so I would just like to see her summoning those memories because that would make her interiority just more developed and it would also show us instead of just telling us I also wanted her to be anticipating her dad's reaction a little bit more like she is giving him the silent treatment she's not being very nice to her dad like I would say she's being rude. I completely understand why she's being rude, of course. But when a teenager acts up, they have a history of knowing to what their degree, their parent is going to tolerate that. And so their mind has to be clocking, like how far she can go. When he's outside the door, she should be anticipating he'll be there for like half an hour and then he'll give up. All I have to do is wait half an hour or or something else. But she should be able to anticipate his move because he's her dad and she's capable of doing that. Also when she cuts her hair, she does think of the bully's reaction which is so great. Is her dad going to be mad? That's another question I had. So also as a final big picture note, we are told she sees auras in the in the query letter and I really liked that. I don't see her seeing the auras. I don't see her seeing her dad's auras or Benny's aura. So yeah, I wanted to see that, but maybe it's intentional and that's okay. If I, I, I'd be fine waiting as long as it's intentional. Thank you for sharing.
0: Well, I think we were on our best behavior today. I give us 10 out of 10. I give us 10 out of 10 for best behavior. So it only took us two and a half years to get it together so that we could run ourselves without Bianca. So yay us.
2: <laughs> yay. <laughs>
0: Good us. That is it for Books with Hooks. Thanks for spending some time with Cece and I. And now we lead you to the author interview. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and Francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of one hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Hi
2: everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is
1: After traveling the globe for several years and working at an array of mostly writing-related jobs, she decided it was time to focus exclusively on her true love, novel writing. She has published nine novels and recently received grants from Arts Nova Scotia and the Canada Council for the Arts to write her next novel. She lives in Nova Scotia with her husband and young daughter. It's my pleasure to welcome Charlene Carr. Charlene, welcome to the show.
3: Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here.
1: It's so wonderful to have you because just for our listeners for a bit of context, Charlene submitted two books with hooks in I think it was the March of 2021. So that's almost two years ago. And I replied to Charlene and I said, we'd love to have on the show, but the soonest we could have her on was in the May. And in the meantime, Charlene got representation and messaged us to let us know. And she withdrew her submission. And that was hugely, hugely exciting. We love hearing that authors no longer can join us on the show because they now have representation. So Charlene, can you take us through that process? How did that happen in terms of the representation? and your journey to publication. And then after that, we're going to chat about the book itself.
3: Okay, sounds great. Definitely Books with Hooks helped out a lot. I've really worked hard on my cover letter and I took information from the show. I also worked with an organization that was specifically on polishing your query letter and your first pages, and that was really helpful. I did a webinar as well with a writing group that I'm part of and they gave me feedback on the query. So when I did start querying, I felt very, very confident in the query and pretty confident in my first pages as as well, as confident as I could get them without hiring an editor to actually look through them. And I did have a lot of, I think I had... 15 beta readers for the the manuscript. And then I also had a number of people who looked at the first five to 10 pages and gave me feedback, another writing group that I'm in, they were doing that. And I actually got my first offer of representation from the Women's Fiction Writers Association. They have a pitch event. And so I submitted to that and I think I got eight to nine requests for full manuscripts. And then a few days after that, I got my first offer.
1: (laughs) That is absolutely amazing. I love hearing that kind of success story. But now you say in the bio that you'd written nine novels before this. So our listeners are going to be going, okay, but you wrote nine novels, but this was the first time you got an agent. So can you explain that a bit to us?
3: Absolutely. So, I never tried for an agent before. I wrote my first novel and I submitted it to three or four local publishers, and a couple of them gave me some really good feedback, but nobody took the book on. And I just didn't know where to go from there. (laughs) I have a BA and an MA in English literature. And so, the only fiction I'd ever really read was the type of stuff that you were studying in university. And I felt that what I was writing was good and solid and I liked it, but I knew it wasn't that. And so, When I got those first few rejections, I just thought, oh, okay, well, I guess this isn't publishable, (laughs) which was incredibly silly and very small minded, but I didn't know any better at the time. And so a friend of mine had learned about self-publishing. This was probably 2013, and he made me promise to try that. And so with the book that I had submitted to some local publishers, i had been working on it for over 10 years. It was really my baby. And I just thought, no, I can't I can't self-publish that. So I wrote a new book specifically with the idea of self-publishing and it was really fun. And I was hearing from readers and having sales and it was incredibly exciting. And I really liked that. So I just kept moving forward with that. And then eventually, you know, fast forward six or seven years, and I'm a mom, and I'm trying to run this independent publishing business and write and be a mother, and it was just too much. And I knew something had to go, and I certainly didn't want the writing to go. So I decided to start a new novel with the goal of finding an agent, finding a publisher, and hoping that they would handle a lot of the stuff that I was doing as an independent publisher so my focus could be a lot more on the writing.
1: Yeah and something you said there is so important and it resonated with me and I'm hoping it'll resonate with our listeners is that when you said you know you were studying these certain kinds of books at university and what you were writing wasn't that and you know there is this I don't know. I feel like there's almost this kind of snobbery in Canlet, especially, you know, Canada, especially. It's like if your writing isn't literary, then it's not worthy, almost in a way. So it needs to be, you know, Giller worthy, which is the big prize in Canada for it to get noticed. And if it's not that, it's crap. And that kind of infuriates me because every bit of writing matters, every genre matters, and it has its readership, and it has its place, and when we try and, you know, compare, let's say, a rom-com to To Kill a Mockingbird, it's going to feel like the rom-com is crap, but it isn't. It can be an amazing, amazing rom-com, it's just not To Kill a Mockingbird, and I feel like we all need to figure out where our lane is and understand that we are going to find our audience and that our genre is still worthy, even if it isn't, you know, one that is kind of going to garner awards for these big kind of things, but you could still get awards within your genre and within your laneway. And this is such an amazing book, Charlene. It was just so hugely ambitious. It was emotional. It was all-encompassing. It gave me goosebumps. And it kind of bugs me that you might not have, you know, got this out there because you were going, oh, well, this is not the books that I was studying in university.
3: I guess something I forgot to explain as I was talking is that in those years of self-publishing, I started learning about more commercial fiction. I'd never read Jodi Picoult. I'd never read Kristen Hanna. And so I started learning about all these other authors. And I also started learning about the ones that kind of bridge commercial and literary, so the upmarket writers. And I think that's where the sweet spot is for me. That's where I hope to write toward. And you're absolutely right. There's... A reader, I think, out there for almost any type of book and finding that is is what the goal is and I think why we write.
1: Yeah, and this was very <laughs> Jodi Picot esque in, in that, you know, we have these characters who are on two different sides of an issue who both have got their own issues who are you know struggling with their own issues and are damaged in their own ways and the reader really doesn't know who to root for can you give our listeners a bit of an overview of the story so that they can understand the context before you and I discuss it a bit more in detail
3: absolutely and thank you as well so much for all you've said about it so far so the story is about two mothers who go to IVF and they find out about a year and a half later that their eggs were switched. And so one of the mothers has been raising her daughter who is not biologically her daughter for the past 10 months. And the other mother has been grieving a child who was never biologically hers. And so that's where the story starts. And then we follow these mothers as they're learning about this life-changing event and figuring out what to happen
1: so where did the idea for this story come from like it it felt you know I I don't want to say it felt personal but certainly it felt like there was there was this impetus there that comes from being really passionate about something you know and I always say to my creative writing students write about something that interests you that you're passionate about was this something playing out in the press at the time how did you come to the story
3: Uh, It is very personal. So the premise is taken directly from my own life. So I've been experiencing infertility for the last 10 years or so. And about five years ago, I had IVF, I guess closer to six now, and had my daughter via IVF. And so when she was born, she emerged visibly white. And for those who are listening and haven't seen, I'm a mixed race black woman. And so I didn't think about it in the first days or weeks but as we got out into public and people kept commenting how much she looked like my husband and nobody commenting you know whether she looked like me and i was seeing her pale skin and her gray eyes which don't happen to be on either side of our family trees and i was seeing her straight hair i started to really start to wonder and fear is she my biological child have they made a mistake at the clinic And so, thankfully, I have no fear anymore. As she grew a little bit older, her features started changing, her eye color changed, her hair curled. I'm fully confident she's my daughter. And when I got to that point where I decided, okay, I need to write a book to try to really engage an agent and publishers and, of course, readers, I was trying to think of something that would be timely and that would feel universal and motherhood is all of those things. And actually, at the time, there had been an IVF switch in the news, which just helped with the timeliness of it and the idea that so many women, so many couples right now are going through fertility treatment. And I know that people have these fears even when race isn't involved. And yeah, so that's where the story came from. I just went and dug deep into all the questions that I didn't even want to consider when I was actually fearful that my daughter might not be biologically mine. And through that, I came up with these two women. And I think the biggest question when I was fearing this myself was, what would I owe to the woman whose child I was raising? And so that really played a lot into the story as well.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I'm not a mother and, you know, I've I've never wanted to have children, but... This tapped into something in me very deeply in terms of that I am this control freak, and that these kinds of things are so out of your control, you know. And, and you can pay for all of these things, and you can do everything right, and when there's a mix up, there's a mix up, and yeah, how your whole life can spiral because of a mistake or something someone else does, you know. So so that was like had me biting my nails throughout. So before we get into the characterization, which was done really well because it was it was nuanced and something that I want to point out that you did so well Charlene is that you know when we think of protagonists and antagonists you know we we think of the protagonist as being this perfect wonderful person and an antagonist being this horrible person and everything about them is terrible but you know antagonists view themselves as the heroes in their own stories and never see themselves as the villains. And we are all a bit of both. I think every one of us as human beings, we're in some stories, we're the heroes, and in some some stories, we're the villains, depending on who people in our lives speak to, certainly. and And you handled them both so, so well. There was so much nuance there. Before we get to that, I want to ask, so you decided to base this in Nova Scotia. Now, I know that this is where you live, but so often we get told as authors, you know, rather base it in the U.S. because that's where the publishers are, that's where the readers are, and people want to read those stories. So did you have this conflict at all, or were you just like, that's it, I'm basing it in Canada, and was there any pushback against that?
3: So for this specific book, when I started to write, I didn't have any question about basing it in Halifax. It's where I live, it's what I know, I think that makes it a lot more genuine. So with my self-published books, there's one series in that, uh, was which was the first one I started, and initially I had it in kind of an unknown place in North America, <laughs> and because I, I wanted to be able to appeal to that U.S. audience, and after i gotten a few comments about, you know, the temperature, and, you know, why would it be in Celsius, or issues of not having a sense of place, or people who just assumed it was in the US, I realized that I wanted to be more genuine with my writing. So I actually went back and re-edited all those and set them all in Halifax. So for me, when it came to writing Hold My Girl, this was where it was going to be. And I did, however, face some pushback with the first agent who offered representation. Now she didn't say it was a deal breaker, but she did really want me to set it in some US town. And for me, I just felt, I don't want this to be one book. I want it to be my career. I want to keep moving forward. And I felt as if I would then feel forced to always set my books in the U.S., which I've never lived there. I don't you know, have an intimate idea of the cultural dynamics. Everything I get is basically from TV and a few visits. So it just didn't feel right to me. And yet, so my agent is from the U.K., but she didn't mind at all. And she liked the idea of having the specificity of a place that I knew.
1: Yeah, it was lovely as a Canadian to read something based in Canada, and <laughs> I mean to be clear, this story could happen anywhere in the world. It really doesn't matter where it takes place. You know, it is about these women. It's about the struggle. It's about you know the moral implications and the ethics and and all of that. So really, it could take place anywhere. But like you say, there is an authenticity basing it somewhere that you know. Before we move on, you've just said your agencies in the UK. And I know our listeners ears have perked up because this is a question we get all the time. I'm based in Canada or I'm based in the US or I'm based wherever. Can I only query agents who are based in my country? So tell us a bit about the UK agent and how that works.
3: With, you know, web calls and phone and internet, it's not really any different than if my agent were based in Toronto, I think, besides having to deal a little bit more with time zones And so when I went out looking for agents, I had two friends who had recently gotten U.S. agents, and that really opened my mind to it because I as well, I don't know why, but I assumed I would only be looking for agents in Canada when I first thought of the idea. And so once it was open to the U.S., why not the U.K. as well? And so I looked on places like MS Wishlist and Query Tracker, and I looked for the agents who seemed, based on the request, to resonate most with what I was writing right now, withhold my girl, and then what I hope to write in the future. And so I didn't limit it by countries at all. I actually have a a friend who lives in Alaska, and her agent, I think, is in Israel. And it's simply because the focus of her book was, was very much kind of a niche that that agent specialized in.
1: Yeah, that's, that's amazing. And it's true with this kind of technology. You don't have to be in the same country. A lot of people don't believe me when I say that Cece and I have only met in real life twice after she became my agent we went once for lunch and she was at my book launch and this is mostly due to COVID because we weren't able to meet during that time but yeah I don't know people maybe think that you spend hours with your agent in real life going for lunches having cozy chit chats but that isn't really the case so yeah your agent can be anywhere and when you sat together and you decided on sort of going out on submission plan Charlene did your agent say okay she's going to specifically pitch publishers in Canada? Or did she pitch publishers in the US and in the UK? What did that look like?
3: So right from the beginning, even before I signed with her, she made it very clear to me that we would be looking at territory based pitching. So pitching Canadian rights in Canada, pitching US rights in the US and pitching UK and the rest of Commonwealth in the UK. So We knew that right from the beginning, and that's how she did it. And so I do have three separate deals. I have HarperCollins with Canada, and then Sourcebix Landmark in the U.S., and Welbeck Publishing in the U.K.
1: That's absolutely amazing. And is the book coming out in all of the the different territories at the same time, or is is it going to be a kind of staggered pub day?
3: Yeah, it's going to be a little bit staggered. So we have January 24th in Canada, February 2nd in the U.K., and then it's not actually coming out until October 10th in the U.S., so little behind there but might be nice to have some of the buzz in the UK and Canada and then see what happens in the US after.
1: Yeah very much so because you know Instagrammers and bookstagrammers when when you follow a bookstagrammer you don't generally notice where the heck they are based you know you just see the books that they love and so when they build up a buzz for a book you want to get the book and it doesn't matter you know what territory they're in so I think having it publish Canada and the UK before then is just going to help the buzz by the time the US gets it everybody's like I've been seeing this damn book everywhere I want it now (laughs) so you know I think that was a, a really a really smart approach okay so let's talk about writing dual POV when you sat down to write this obviously you knew it was going to be dual POV you were looking at these two different women we've got Catherine we've got Tess Did you sit down and play around with POV? Were you going, I'm going to try first person, I'm going to try third person, I'm going to try present tense, past tense? What was your approach to it? Or was it like you knew in your mind very clearly before you sat down what it was you wanted to do?
3: I'm trying to think back because this was almost three and a half years ago now. I don't recall playing with tense a lot with this novel. I think I just sat down to write. It's third person past, I think. Yes, (laughs) I'm just looking at the book here. (laughs) And yeah, I think it just, it felt natural for me. And there are certainly some books like the book that I'm working on right now, my next one, I played with POV a lot, and I changed it a couple of times. And there's different tenses for different characters. So one is past tense, third person, and another is present tense, first person. And then there's kind of some vignettes from another character. And so I played with that. But yeah, this one, it just felt natural. And I think to go back to what you're saying about protagonist and antagonist, for this book, I don't view one or I I view that they are both protagonists and antagonists for themselves. And that's how I love I think most of my books have that the villain is always the main character. And villainy is against herself there may be outside forces but really she's going against her own imperfections and flaws and trying to come out on the other side of that rather than having some separate person who's the antagonist
1: yeah that came through very much you know there was the saying we are our own worst enemies exactly came through so much in these characters because i mean there were times with tess that i was like damn it tess get a damn grip woman you're killing me here But, you know, that is the thing about writing characters who are fully formed, who feel real, is that we can be good people who do bad things. We can be shitty people who sometimes do good things, you know. We can fall apart in the messiest of ways in the most inappropriate times. And that just came through here. And they were both so vulnerable. And that's what we say on the show so many times. Cece says it a lot because people are like, well, how do you get readers to connect with a character who does, you know, not bad things, but perhaps acts against their self-interest or who isn't that perhaps likable per se. And, And it's about vulnerability. It's about giving them vulnerability. And every time Tess messed up, we could understand why she was messing up. You know, it just came from this place of her not believing in herself, of her undermining herself. And so to see that character growth, etc., was really wonderful. Did you struggle with one character as opposed to the other? Because I know when I wrote my first, and I know this isn't your first novel, it's your first traditionally published novel. But when I wrote my debut novel that was alternating POVs, one character came to me so much easier than the other. You know, the one character, their words poured from me and the other one felt like a damn uphill battle to try and get these words down. Was was that the case for you? Or, or were you able to switch backwards and forwards quite seamlessly?
3: I think I was able to switch really well. The thing that wasn't seamless in the beginning is that initially in my mind, it was Catherine's story. And Tess was there more as a counter. And so I had done a lot of background work on her and I knew her really well and I knew why she was making the decisions that she was making. But in the initial book that I queried, <laughs> it was probably 70% Catherine and 30% Tess. And there was a whole other subplot that was all about Catherine and Catherine's growth and Catherine's background. And so what my agent really pressed upon, and I, and I think it was a very smart thing, was that she wanted to see these women equally on the page. So I did a ton of revision. I ended up cutting about 60,000 words from the book, and then adding in another 30,000, which was mostly Tess's perspective. So when it actually came to adding it in, it wasn't that hard, because I had it all in my mind. And I had it in you know my background, my research, all of that, but I just hadn't put it in the page. And when I did that, that's where you get that more even balance of shifting sympathies that a lot of early readers had commented on in the book because we're really back and forth between Tess. It is much more balanced. And <laughs> and certainly when
1: it comes to dual POV, you know, we get this question all the time. I've got one character who's there 70% of the time and 30% is the other character. And when that tends to happen, we tend to say we don't know that it should be a dual POV novel, because if that other character only needs to be there 30% of the time, how integral is it that the story is structured as as dual POV? And it makes sense that you would want to spend more time with Catherine, since you said that it was that story, your own story that inspired, you know, Catherine's story. But certainly, I agree with your agent, I, I don't think it would have felt quite as nuanced if we had spent more time with With Catherine, we had to be backwards and forwards between the two of them.
3: Absolutely. Yes, it it really improved the flow. And in some ways, it made it a different book. But we always kept to the core of the story, which was most important to me. And I think really examining what is motherhood while also looking at the way that motherhood shapes and affects and changes women. And how they manage or don't manage to maintain their own sense of self through that journey.
1: Yeah, that came across beautifully, really beautifully. Well, our time is up, Charlene. For our listeners, we're putting Hold My Girl on our bookshop.org affiliate page. Go out and get it. If you're doing dual POV and and you want to kind of see that lovely balance, definitely study this. It's a wonderful read. So just get it because it's a wonderful read. And Charlene, we wish you much, much success with this book. I, I have a feeling we're going to see a lot of it. I think it's going to get a lot of buzz and I'm keeping everything crossed for you.
3: Oh, thank you so much. And thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm a big fan. So this was very exciting.
1: And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show.
3: In the meantime,
1: keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup